0: Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to WorkHardPlayHardExperience.com Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And
1: remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. Seeing the first iterations of what hip-hop was or it was spoken word mixed with beats and rhythm and I, and I heard this sound that came from that cassette tape. And uh, my mom found out that I had that cassette tape. She took it from my cassette tape player, broke it. I uh, saved up more money and went and bought the tape again. So I actually bought that tape twice. You have to get focused when it's the quietest. And so I try to create quiet moments in my day just to zone in on one thing. It's hard to hate somebody up close. I think that once we really get into somebody's world and we understand more about where they're at, there's a lot more understanding this goes to politics this goes to sports this goes to everything and so how can we get closer to each other what's
0: up everybody welcome to another episode of the work hard play hard show today's episode is with billy Bowie. billy Bowie, billy Bowie, i love saying that name this was such a great freaking interview billy is a guy that runs an entertainment business where he takes basically events and he makes them freaking amazing but he's got quite a story we talked about growing up in atlanta and his first run dmc cassette and what that did for him and all the way up to freestyling with the roots on the jimmy fallon show so give this episode a listen you will freaking love it
1: Billy, welcome to the show. Man, I am so excited to be on the show with you, man. Thanks for having me. It was only a matter of time
0: until our paths crossed. I mean, we we crisscrossed uh, California, Atlanta, multiple friends, so it is uh, it is time to make this happen. So thanks
1: for being on the show. For sure, and you're like this uh, legend, this unicorn that's out there dancing around on some hill, and I didn't quite know where you were, but it's good to finally like, lock it down and have a conversation. I've been impressed with your work for a minute, and I'm really, really excited to be on your show.
0: Well, I appreciate the compliment, but you absolutely do not want to see me dancing anywhere. (laughs) It is not pretty at all. And speaking of dancing, I want to unwind the clock a little bit back uh, to, I think when you were around eight years old, if I can go that far in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about you getting your first cassette tape, which I believe was Run DMC's Raising Hell. Can you kind of like... Walk me through what that particular music did for you at that particular time in your life.
1: So I think everybody in life has a story and it's when your story connects to, it's either a song or a movement or a phrase or a person, you can take a totally different tra- trajectory. For me, I love hip hop. I wrote a uh, blog series called Hip Hop Raised Me and being in Atlanta, seeing the first iterations of what hip hop was or was spoken word, mixed with beats and rhythm. And I, and I heard this sound that came from that cassette tape and run DMC. I mean, they are the origin story of hip hop in so many different ways. And uh, my mom found out that I had that cassette tape. She took it from my cassette tape player, broke it. I uh, saved up more money and went and bought the tape again. So I actually bought that tape twice. (laughs) And what that music did for me is it, it showed me passion and grit and authentic storytelling, which is really kind of how I built my career is, is around that. So yeah, that, that moment was a game changer. And it's gone through many, many different artists since then. And um, got a chance to do my very first TED Talk a few weeks ago around freestyle rap and leadership. And so how every leader can lead like a freestyle rapper. So, so yeah, there's a lot to that story, but it was a game changer.
0: Wow. So dropping that, uh, that TED Talk bomb, that's interesting. How do you prep for something like that? Well,
1: you get nervous as can be. You have self doubt, fear, anger, frustration. You, uh, kick yourself a few times. You put your points down, you crumble it up, you throw it in the trash and then you start over again four or five times. That's what I did anyway. Um, just really trying to get to the bottom of how do I take 12 minutes of somebody's valuable time and add value to them? I mean, my career has been built on how do I add as much value to people as I possibly can by creating remarkable experiences for them. And and so for me, I had to take the three different parts um, that I've learned from freestyle rap and how I've applied it to uh, to my life. And I started with this phrase. You'll love this. I said, what if Dr. Dre was your CEO? What if Nicki Minaj was your CFO and, and Jay-Z? He ran talent acquisition, and that was my that was my hook. And from there, I had him in the palm of my hand. It was a lot of fun and super grateful. Um, Should be on the TEDx site sometime soon. Like literally just happened a few weeks ago, and I think I'm still a little nervous about it. You know, you know this Rob, but you put yourself out there, and you know that it really sticks. I'm hoping it did.
0: Yeah, it you know, it's a double-edged sword because there's always like, you know, Camaro guy 919 that's going to give you a comment and call you an asshole. Yep. Like there's just no <laughs> way around that that that's going to happen and it gets tougher and tougher and tougher, but I've I've actually learned that the more negative comments that I get, the more exposure I have. In other words, if I'm sending it out, you know, 10 people are seeing it, probably nobody's going to say anything, but if, you know, 10,000 see it and like 0.5% you know, give you some negative feedback. It just, it, it sort of just validates that it's, uh, that your message is getting out there. Yeah, uh, it's always even. it's
1: always been fuel. You know, this it, it's, you choose to make it bring you down or take you up. My favorite scene in any movie is the last scene of 8 Mile. And I love when Eminem's on stage, named Rabbit in the movie, and he basically says everything that somebody else is going to say negative about him, and he wins the battle out of his vulnerability. And I think there's, there's something to that, right? When you can embrace that, use it as fuel versus let it take you down.
0: Do you know that you are the only person, I have said that, and I know you don't know this, but I have said that in so many interviews, when people ask me things, what has, that is the one thing, I wonder why we both have that, but that is the one thing where, I'm not giving you the opportunity to tell me that I'm from a trailer park. I'm gonna tell you Mm. that I'm from, so you can't. I'm gonna call myself the name first. I love that. I love how you how you came up with. that. That's awesome. Yeah, there's so much. You, know, you were raised. Um, there is. You were raised with a Christian background. Um, being from Atlanta, let's be honest, it's the Bible Belt, right? Got a lot yeah. of preaching going down in those parts. And you found a uh, a Christian rapper named Lecrae. What was it about his message that informed that part of your life?
1: Yeah, so I grew up, you know, pissed at God, pissed at my parents, pissed at life. Really, um, I had a speech impediment as a kid. Um, was emotionally abused by my stepfather growing up. I had a I had just a tough upbringing. Mom worked three jobs, barely enough to get by. Dad was present, but wasn't as present as maybe some other. And and so I just kind of grew up a bit angry. Well, my freshman year of college, faith intersected my life, and not in a churchy kind of way, but a reality of man, there is a a bigger picture, gratitude, canvas of the world that wants you to kick ass. He doesn't want you to be normal. So I said, gosh, I, I can get down with that. So I started listening to artists that were more painting a picture of what if what if there was a God in heaven that was for you, not against you. And McCray was one of the very first ones alongside of a couple other artists that that I heard reality sound. And I saw him on Sway in the morning when he would freestyle rap for Sway. And it wasn't just Kumbaya and jesus loves me it was talking about real stuff like soldiers losing their right leg and depression and driving a car that's broke down and 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 i could get down with it but then there was hope so for me he just he he changed the way i thought about artistry that you don't have to sacrifice whatever faith you are you don't have to sacrifice who you are for your artistry you can have a mixture of both so yeah him him and several others changed my life through that and man I'm, i'm definitely not a um Perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but but I know that my artistry is connected to something bigger, which which gives me more joy in the midst when it's hard. Yeah,
0: for sure. You know, speaking of artistry, you um, you eventually went on stage um, and began uh, doing your own sort of uh, freestyle rap, um, which is where you know your interest in the uh, the Eight Mile movie probably got sparked, and mine probably went away. <laughs> uh, but what? <laughs>
1: What's the playbook uh, to being a great rapper? So if you look at the different styles and you look at the different types of rap, I mean, we've got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We've got the Country Music Hall of Fame. We've got all these Hall of Fames, but there's not a hip hop Hall of Fame, which one of my life ambitions is to start a hip hop Hall of Fame because there's so many different West Coast, East Coast, overseas, North, South, different styles. And being from Atlanta... I grew up listening to um, Outcast, which are from the ATL, love their style of music, but they didn't try to fit in like everybody else. And connected with me was once I really figured out that I could tell a story through my words and I could, um, I have some swagger, like I have some style on stage and I could connect with people. I had a friend of mine pull me aside and teach me how to freestyle. And he actually um, took a blank table with nothing on it. And he put just one solo item there and he basically taught me, and I share this in my TED talk, that you have to focus on one thing to tell the story about all the things. And so, from a freestyle standpoint, I'm where I'm sitting right now. I have a Boston Red Sox hat sitting on the table, so I would talk about the color, the texture, the size, the imprint, the design, the story, the background of the you know Red Sox, and then I would mix my cell phone and put it next to it. And what does the cell phone on my table have to do with that hat? And you begin to mix those two, and I just really got addicted to storytelling through that because i noticed folks were leaning in i noticed folks were like wait what is he freestyling right now and i'm by no means by no stretch of the imagination a professional freestyle rapper or uh have ever been paid big dollars to do it but it's always been an attention getter because it just connects the story so so yeah that's where my that's that's where freestyle came in for me and actually a, a, a fun story about tone loke i was in a freestyle rap battle at Piedmont Park in Atlanta, where it was a bunch of people with different uh, skin tone than me were getting on stage. And all my friends said, Bill, you got to get up there. So I went up on stage. Not only did I win the rap battle and won $100 cash, I got to freestyle and rap with Tone Loke, uh, who sings Funky Cole Medina and Wild Thing, kind of an old school rapper. But just, it it was some fun moments. And it's always been something for me that I've hung my hat on just because it's something you wouldn't expect from people that look like me.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's got uh, Tone loke has got uh, that crazy—I don't know, like baritone yep. or like—I don't know what the word is—but he has such a velvety voice. It's it's just amazing. I mm-hmm. love that. Super interesting. You know, a couple of things came to mind when you were telling that story. The first one is um, if you haven't already, you should YouTube. There was an episode of 60 Minutes where they interviewed oh, yeah. Eminem oh, in his yeah, house. I love that. Oh, Did yeah. you see that one? It's the best. And it was so interesting for those, uh, for listeners who haven't seen it, basically there was um the equivalent of like a big wooden box. And he just took a bunch of, you know, notes that he took throughout his life, his days, whatever, threw him in there of just little wraps. And he just sort of like went off, you know, for the person doing it. And I was like, there is, there is absolutely, it is absolutely clear why he is as good as he is. I mean, he is dedicated to this, you know, craft of, of, uh, would I be too white if I said rhyming?
1: Yeah, rhyming style. I mean no, not at all. But <laughs> I love there's two there's two things in that interview, Rob, if you remember it, is uh Anderson Cooper was interviewing him and Anderson said, like, okay, okay, M, like, what rhymes with orange? And he's like, I really get pissed off when people ask me, they say nothing rhymes with orange. He's like, I can name ten words right now that rhyme with orange. And he would say, door hinge, four inch, and he would he he talked about more of it was bending the words. Not not taking yeah, it for face value.
0: I do remember yeah. that. And then
1: he also said the number one thing that sticks with that interview with me. And he said, "What are you trying to get when you're on stage?" And he just leans back in his chair, looks dead right in Anderson's face, and says, "Respect." And I and I mm. think I, I, if I were to if I were to boil it all down of why I perform, why I entertain, why I create experiences is to gain respect. And I would say if if I was really honest, most of it is extremely selfish because I want to look good. Am I? Weakest moments, selfish. But when I can get to the beauty of when I can entertain and create experiences and other people come to life, man, that's the good stuff. So I'm in a constant pilgrimage of trying to get out of my own way to create experiences. But that one word, respect, when he said that in that interview, just it rocked me.
0: Do you think that as they become you know, or as they became, and by they, I'm going to include guys like Jay-Z and Dr. Dre and, you know, all the usual suspects that everybody knows. Do you think as they started getting in the mega millions and went from the hood to the mansions, do you think it became more difficult for them to be able to tap into what they needed to tap into to create you know, compelling music. I mean, certainly it didn't seem to hurt Jay-Z, but I wonder what your thoughts yeah, are. Yeah.
1: So my, my first thing is, um, is something Gary V says about money is money doesn't change you. It exposes you. And I've, I've always loved that phrase probably five years ago. I heard him say that. And I think about the first thing you, when you asked that question, that was my first thought right behind that is, is you look at the greats in anything, if they do it for the money, then, it's going to fall quickly. I mean, you, you saw 50 Cent yesterday was in uh, Hollywood, got a Hollywood star, and he was standing next to Dr. Dre and Eminem. And you could just see that there's brotherhood, there's chemistry, there was artistry. Not, not that there wasn't ups and downs with 50 Cent's life, not that it hasn't been ups and downs with all of them, but the best of the best, they don't change. They might have a little bit nicer equipment, like they might have a, a, a better microphone and a better studio, but you'll see the grit What's unique about hip hop compared to other forms of art is it's very much a story, you know, and you'll see, um, we're seeing a lot of things, Kobe Bryant come out now about a lot of artists are, you know, pausing 24 seconds in their album or making their eighth song, something about Kobe. They're, they're taking that. So it's very much with the times. So I would, I'd be remiss to say if, you know, Jay-Z or these folks that are now multi, multi-million, if not billion dollar artists, they're definitely writing about different things <laughs> than they were back in the day. So it does change its some, but hopefully they'll stay, most of them have stayed true that I've seen. All right,
0: so I'm going to ask you the question that you don't want to be asked and you probably hate to answer. And who's the best rapper of all time? Goodness. I know, because it's contextual, right?
1: It really it really is. If, if, you're, if you want to talk about sheer lyrics and have stood the test of time, for me, it has to be Eminem. And the reason is I've seen him freestyle on the street at various videos i've seen him on stage we saw him go through alcohol addiction his his uh, record he came out with called rehab was one of the worst albums of all time he not only puts it out but he also clowns on himself for it being terrible and comes back and puts out another banger for his next album so he's incredible at it um i would say from a if i'm picking someone who would be the best rapper of all time it would be him and i think a lot of the rappers would say the same but for me from from a history standpoint Tupac was one that, as a kid, I grew up with, and the way he story told was just was just remarkable. So it'd probably be a a tie somewhere between them two. Why do
0: you think that? It, and and you can correct me if I got the information wrong. But why do you think that it's that it's held that black people like Eminem
1: and white people like Jay Z? Gathering my thoughts, the best way to answer that. You know, I've met more Black people that like country music, and white people, that, <laughs> and white people that like rap music over the last decade than I thought I would ever meet. I think there's a lot of assumptions on all sides. Yeah, I think we all. I think naturally we all want to lean in. We all want to say, "Oh wow, I I don't want to do what you're expecting me to do." I think all of us are born with this little little bitty chip on our shoulder where we want to do the opposite of what people think that we should. So I think there's definitely some of that. And gosh, everybody's listening ability is just so very different. But I think you will see over time that music is going to become just music. Like I so appreciate when Jay Z and J T. Actually, Justin Timberlake is my favorite artist of all time. If you're wondering musically who I appreciate the most, he's definitely my favorite. But when him and Jay Z got on Saturday Night Live and they did suit and tie together, I mean just just seeing a black artist who's obviously a billionaire, and I mean. Media mobile and everything else, and then JT with all the stuff he's done, seeing them work together. But you know what's my favorite is watching Aerosmith and Run DMC do "Walk This Way." That changed everything for me. So I don't know if I'm even answering your question, but I but no, I would say are, that you actually you.
0: Yeah, no, you are. You are answering the question that makes, it makes perfect sense. We, we inherently don't want to be put in a box and maybe we're interested in what's a little bit different than us. So I really, uh, I really like that. And yes, I agree with you. Did you see, uh, did you see Aerosmith and, uh, run DMC on the Grammys last week? I did. I mean, it's crazy. I did.
1: It's still going. <laughs> They're still doing it. I, I don't know how well they're doing it anymore. It's probably one of the last performances. I, think it, need, should I think it needs to be. I <laughs> think it needs one. to be. I, I heard
0: Steven Tyler. I went, all right, buddy. Okay. Yep. <laughs> I love you. Let. Can we just end Seinfeld on a high note? There's no reason yes. to do this. <laughs> so if we move the, uh, if we move the clock, uh, you know, forward a little, uh, a little bit more forward this time, um, you decided that you wanted to get into sports and you became a baseball player and you entered the draft and Around 2000, you got picked by the Marlins, and then you were traded to the Phillies. But you decided that you were going to quit only
1: after one season. Why? So I had the opportunity to get college paid for, which was amazing. And then when I got picked up by the Phillies, had an amazing first year with them. And then in spring training, my heart wasn't as in it in and as much as I thought it was, which caused me not to throw as well. So I would like to say it was totally my choice. It was definitely a mutual decision of why I didn't play. I stepped away from the game for a few months, went and played some independent leagues to try to get back. But I had never been cut from a team before. I was always the star athlete. But realizing at that level, there were so many wonderful athletes that were a whole, a whole different place than I was. Um, it was a good time to quit. And I think that's a little clue for listeners too, is something that was really good at one season of your life. It's okay for... Us to stop doing that at one season and to learn how to how to put it to rest. Not to say it was totally easy for me, but I realized that was my that was my cap, and it was time to shut it down. When
0: you were when you were on the Marlins, Phillies, etc., was that a farm team
1: or was that the regular
0: team? I'm not a
1: sports farm guy. Team. Farm team. Yeah. So there are so many levels. Like when you go to the NBA, it's just one team. When you go to the NFL, it's just one team. With major league baseball, you've got big league, triple A, double A, high A, low A, high rookie, low rookie. There's about 180 players in every major league baseball farm system. And so I was one of the lowest levels there. So I was nowhere near, nowhere near the big leagues, but, um, but it was fun while I lasted.
0: Ah, okay. Okay. Are you still into sports
1: now? You know, I had to step away from the game to even watch it probably about five years. And now I'm a diehard Braves fan. Um, my ambition is to buy the Atlanta Hawks. I would love to bring a championship to Atlanta through through our basketball team. Um, we've struggled for for many decades from the, from the NBA perspective. But that is uh, one of my ambitions is to buy the Hawks and to bring a championship here. So I, I like basketball more than baseball, but still like baseball as well.
0: Well, you got to connect with uh Jesse Jesse Itzler there in Atlanta. I think he's got a piece of the Hawks
1: uh now, doesn't he? He does. And I actually got a to be in an event with Lewis Howes this last year, and Jesse came to speak and we uh we did a little freestyle rap together and had some fun. So we're supposed to take in a Hawks game soon. So Jesse, if you're out there, man, let's let's get it in. No kidding. You freestyled with uh Jesse Itzler? We had a little fun. Yeah, it was it was good. Kind of a a little bit of something, something and, and got a chance to have a conversation about, um, you know, old school rap when he was a part of it and entrepreneurship. And you want to talk about an incredible, incredible man. He's he's got it going on. And, and he married well as well. Having a Sarah Blakely as his wife, that's a the ultimate power couple.
0: Yeah. For those of you that don't know, uh, Lewis Howes has a uh, an event uh, called the Summit of Greatness. Um, he's good friends with Jesse Itzler, who um, started Vitamin Water, uh, NetJets, and uh, among other things, and then uh, didn't really need to, but married a gal with a lot of cash, um, who's uh, Sarah Blakely, and they have four children and live in Atlanta. But he was a rapper, and that's how you guys connected. Um, I'm assuming it was in Ohio.
1: Yeah, he was one of the he was one of the very first. I mean, he was the one of the very first white rappers, along with Vanilla Ice, in that series. You know that that season of time, and it was fun for him to be a pioneer. And he really looked past skin color. Uh, he was a writer and an artist, more of a behind the scenes guy. But he's got a really really cool story. Look him up. He's got a a thing called Build Your Life Resume, which is a great online course to really help you figure out what do you want in life and how you actually go get it. It's pretty cool.
0: I love that. So if we forward the clock a little bit further, you found yourself in the events world, which led you to work with the, uh, the Disney Institute. What magic did you learn there that you're still using in your business and in your life?
1: So most people, when they play uh, professional baseball, they come back in the off season and you can do a couple of things. You can wait tables, you can be a bouncer, a bartender. Uh, there, there's not a whole lot of things you can do for six months. And your employer knows like, hey, I've got to be out. Or there's this one magical profession you can do called DJ. And so I just started picking up compact discs and putting them in a CD player and started DJing corporate events. Um, anything from Wild Wild West events all the way up to award ceremonies, product launches, things like that. And I started to learn my heart would come to life when I thought about creating experiences for people. And you know, I grew up going to Disney World. I love, um, love Walt and his vision and what they created there obviously all over the world now. So taking those principles of magic and how do you uh, take a moment and you can appeal to everyone's senses, you can connect them to the message. And um, in my book called Culture Reconstructed, I, I share this concept that's really just this Venn diagram that every single company, every single event has to have. And you have to have this magic between energy, community, and connection. It's a Venn diagram that collides in the middle. And every gathering you have has to have the right energy, whether that's low or high, whatever that looks like has to have the right community, which you are connecting people to each other. And then the third part, you have to have the right um, connection, which means connection to the message overall. So um, those are the the pieces of magic I create is what energy, what community, what connection. And the Disney Institute was a a big fuel for that, along with other companies that I've had a chance to work with. Okay. But that
0: then um, sparked you to open your own company, which is called
1: Elevate, uh, where you live in Atlanta. What is it and what do you guys do? So if somebody was on an elevator and said, Hey, Billy, what do you do? My quick phrase would be, we eliminate the plague of boring events. Hmm. Most most people uh, spend thousands, if not millions of dollars on creating these events. And you walk out, people are really, really glad to leave. They wish they didn't ever arrive. And so we really help brands figure out what story are they trying to tell when they create an event. And so some of the biggest brands in the world... A couple of them, Chick-fil-A, Delta, Coca-Cola, Home Depot, mostly Atlanta brands I mentioned, but really work with groups everywhere. As we ask them questions like, hey, when your guest gets in the car and they leave, what do you want them to be feeling? And what do you want them to be thinking? And realizing in the production industry, most people don't ask that question. And I just started asking, hey, what do you want people to be talking about? Not not what's your hashtag, not what's your logos. What do you want them to be talking about? What do you want them to be saying to each other? What do you want them to be... Uh, feeling when they leave and so getting to that level then we create the stage lighting sound production run of show we start creating these experiences but it's not until a brand can really identify what they want to create so that's where elevate was born so elevate experiences been around for eight years and um we help people make their events come to life
0: So give me an example of um, the kind of events you do. Now I understand sort of your ethos behind it, your motivation, but what would
1: be an example? Would it be a corporate gig or a wedding? Like what, what is it? Yeah. So I'll give you an example of Delta. Delta does a big block party in Atlanta. 30,000 people is at the airport stage, a run of show. They bring in a band they want somebody to kind of help make it come to life. So, our team would be the MC, host on the microphone, we'd also run the music, kind of play the DJ role, and then also make sure things are happening on and off stage. That's that's one thing we do is event management, <laughs> MCing and hosting. Another thing we do is I had an event this week that was uh, 120 people at a town hall kickoff for their year. I came in and did a 1-hour uh, team building event which was all around unity. So, it was about 20 minutes of content, and then 40 minutes of interactive games and conversations we created to get the team talking about what Unity meant for their brand. So that's two examples of it. But um, really, anything from a a giant stage to the audio-visual part of it, we do some of that. We leave that to the the AV experts. We're really coming in after that stuff is set, and how do you make the event come to life? So that's just two examples. Okay. You
0: also wrote a book um, that was called... Culture reconstructed. Where do most people go wrong when they're designing a company culture?
1: So I'll give you an illustration I use when I talk about the book. Have you ever played with Lincoln Logs before, Rob? Yeah, I have. I still do. I have a (laughs) five-year-old. Yeah, exactly. So I have an eight-year-old boy and we were playing Lincoln Logs and the revelation came to me that the way I build Lincoln Logs, the way he builds them is different. Now, as an adult, you would think I would dump them all out, separate them, see what I'm working with, and then put it together. That's not how I did it. I just said, full speed, let me just go, go hand, build as fast as I can. But I watched my son, he would be very thoughtful and systematic what he built when, and guess whose was built better? His was. Guess which one took more time? His did. So the biggest mistake that I see in organizational culture is folks not even considering what the building blocks are before they start. So I break down in my book the 14 non-negotiable building blocks that every culture has to have. Like These are non-negotiables. They have to be a part. Now, you might ignore them. You might dust them under the rug or not talk about them. They have to be there. And when they're not, a part of your culture is not going to thrive or you're going to be really strong in one area and not in another. So I try to really help leaders figure out what part, as soon as you go from a solopreneur to hiring your first person, whether it's a contractor or part-time or full-time, what part of your culture are you going to be deficient in? And we can't attack all 14 blocks at once. Some of them, you're just not going to be able to. But if you don't talk about what fun looks like in your company, or diversity and inclusion, health and wellness, or collaboration, eventually, those are going to be a part of the conversation. So just being aware of those, and then having a plan to at least start the conversation earlier than you think. You know this, Rob. You've talked to a lot of folks that have built businesses, most of the time we say, oh, I wish I'd have thought about that five years ago. And so I try to get that out early so at least they're not blindsided. So that's what the book's for, is folks that want to build a meaningful culture.
0: All right, so I want to go into an area that is controversial, if you're willing to go there with me, and that is the world of the Me Too movement in corporate culture. Things Mm -hmm. have changed um, since we were kids, and now... You got to be really, really appropriate with what you say, what you do, how you approach things. People are super skittish around that. What's your thoughts in the year 2020 about how corporate culture works, how how you view it in light of all of these, uh, all of this Me Too sort of movement
1: over the last couple of years? Yeah, I think Me Too is fantastic because there were some dickheads out there that weren't treating people the right way. That's the... Yeah. That's the extreme version of that. Now you bring it back to um, where things should be as a culture. If you have a leader that hasn't clearly stated what your culture is about, then you're always walking on eggshells. And we as a, you know, we, as a team, we're trying to figure out how do we get folks to have more face-to-face conversations in a world that's more technical and more te- technologically savvy and virtual and all that sort of thing. I tell people from the Me Too movement, from the controversial parts of culture The more controversial the conversation needs to be, you have to get face to face with that person. Whether it's on Zoom, at worst, but at best, undistracted face to face.
0: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. You know, you're um, you are a guy that is willing to have a good time. That is uh, that is certainly clear. And if uh, my research is correct, you actually wound up doing your freestyling with the Roots on Jimmy Fallon. Is that right? I
1: did. Tell me about that. What what, oh my what what were the steps that led to that? So if you've ever been in New York to the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, it's the tickets are free. It's only two hundred and thirty-three seats in the auditorium. It's really small. And so my wife and I went to New York and got on the show and where they sat me was right on the right on the aisle. I mean, literally right there, four rows up from Jimmy on the aisle. And I just had this feeling when I sat there, I said, okay, something something interesting is going to happen. They didn't ask any questions before. They didn't tell us the skits were going to happen. None of that. But I'm such a big fan of the Roots and such a big fan of Tariq, particularly the freestyle uh, lead vocalist there. And so right when they broke into this, it's time to freestyle with the Roots. So there's like little intro thing. And I was like, I looked at my wife. I said, oh yeah, it's going down. And so Jimmy runs up, he takes this card. He asked a guest in the audience a certain amount of questions. And then the Roots... Drop a beat and they freestyle. Well, he went past me to this lady and did this segment, and then I put my head down. Rob, I have never been more nervous in my life. I was, and I teach public speaking and training, and but I was sweating out of every pore in my body. I was so nervous because I knew what was coming. I, and you, if you watch it on Facebook now, you can go. Um, you can go search uh, Bruce Willis. Freestyling with the Roots, it's, uh, it's still on Facebook. But if you look at it, I look totally normal. But I am sweating bullets. My wife points at me. I stand up, and there was a split second where he was asking me questions, and I was cutting up with Jimmy a little bit, and I kind of pitched myself, saying, "I'm standing next to a legend, Jimmy Fallon." And I just said, "Screw it!" There was something that happened in my brain. I was like, "Okay, screw this. I'm doing it." I interrupted him and said, "Hey, I'm a freestyle rapper. I don't know." I just paused and he looked at me and then Jimmy looked at his producer, which was two two rows in front of me, and she smiled at Jimmy and kind of shrugged her shoulders. And then Jimmy looked at Tariq and Tariq shrugged his shoulders and Jimmy said, Well, I guess we'll let you freestyle about your own situation. And they let me do it. And it was a very mediocre rap. I, like I said, I was super nervous. I could barely hear the beat where I was standing in the audience. But uh re- the records at four o'clock in the afternoon. We went and watched Hamilton that night, which is an amazing show on Broadway. And then we went to dinner afterwards, and I actually watched myself on TV at a bar right there in Central Park. And everybody around the bar realized it was me. And I, I was a famous white rapper for about 30 seconds. I was really famous in one restaurant in New York, and that was about it. So it was a fun white lesson.
0: Well, you know, who knew what was going to happen in life, right? I mean, that is uh, a crazy story. I mean, that was certainly meant to be for you. I mean, can you imagine like all these years of freestyle rapping and now uh, I don't know how many millions of people
1: watch Jimmy Fallon, but I assume it's a lot. Uh, And I made made $348,000 from that moment. How's that? So I'll talk about this with people. I, I tracked back all the texts and emails I got because of that moment. And all of the deals, invoices, things that we did, it equaled $348,000. And so I'll say, is your fear worth, or is overcoming your fear worth $348,000? Because it was for me. And then I tell the story. And so you never know what's on the other end of it. Now, that was a monetary connection, not always monetary. But it was a fun moment for me personally to trace back when I was brave, actually something good happened.
0: I love that. All right, we're going to move into the fulfillment part of the show. Life is not just about making money; it's also about enjoying what you do. So, I'm going to ask you some questions that are going to be probably weirdo questions, and you're going to be like, "What the hell is he asking me?" <laughs> just roll with it. Like what it. is what is an unusual or absurd thing that you love?
1: You, unusual or absurd? I love remote control cars. And I love racing them as a kid, like dirt track, remote control car. I like getting into the engine and cleaning them out. It's, it's something you wouldn't know about me, but I really love the technical side of remote control cars. And I really also love classical music. Those are two things that are kind of a little bit different you might not see from the outside.
0: What is it about classical music that you love? Because every time I try and listen to it, it's like I can't, I can do opera, but it has to be particular, like Andrea Bocelli or Pavarotti, sort of that deeps, you know, bassy kind of thing. I love, but when I hear classical music, either I go to sleep or it's just really, really difficult for me to process. What is it about it that you love?
1: Yeah, and I have to have triggers in my life for me to pause. I'm such a driven entrepreneur. I'm always on quote unquote, for me, classical music is a mental permission to, to shut things off. So I appreciate, Mm. I appreciate the artistry, but that is a, you know, for the listeners as well, you've got to have something that either get you going or shut you down. Most people talk about music that gets them fired up to work out and all that. For me, classical music is a chance to let my brain pause. And honestly, that's where my best ideas come is when I can just throttle back and pause. That's why. Well I got it it's, it's a trigger to
0: relax and it also for the most part doesn't have lyrics right right <clears throat> so you can kind of just you know get in the moment and feel it I love that when you are overwhelmed or you're unfocused what do you do to help refocus yourself back
1: Yeah it's interesting the the theme this year for my company is focus and the phrase I've been using is many people have vision but few have focus and the way I talk about vision is the best leaders I've ever met that really, really get focused, that have something they see in their vision, they really get focused, is you have to get focused when it's the quietest. And so I try to create quiet moments in my day just to zone in on one thing. Like, for instance, we have a, a mutual friend, Chris Harder. I know when, uh, when I sit with Chris on a call, I have to put in time afterwards because I'm usually overwhelmed with ideas. I have to put 15 to 30 minutes afterwards, just a process and what scientists would call metacognition, which is simply um, thinking about my thinking is not just thinking about the idea, but giving myself permission to think about my thinking, which my thought process around this idea is more important than the actual thinking about that idea. So when I'm overwhelmed, I have to really take a step back and think what that looks like. Um, the best seasons for me is when I can have some sort of escapism for me, it's usually Braves baseball, uh, <laughs> or it's usually some sort of sporting event that I can get fired up with, but it's also working out running. I love, I love exercise as well. So those are some of the, the typical ones you might think, but the metacognition one has really helped me as giving myself permission to not just think about the revenue producing thing, but think about my thinking as it comes to that.
0: Okay, so I'm halfway to understanding what you mean by metacognition. So you do a call um, with Chris Harder, you talk about your business, you guys are spitballing ideas back and forth, and you know that when that call is over, that your brain is full and you got lots of ideas, but you're not necessarily drilling down on a particular idea, creating, action, creating an action plan, but you're thinking about your thinking. Can you give me an example of
1: what thinking about your thinking is in real life. That's yeah, a lot of sure. metaphor. No, yeah. That's good. So I use the, uh, the illustration that the best leaders ears pop all the time. You've been on a plane, you've been up a mountain, you know, your ears pop when you go up, your ears pop when you come down. And you have to figure out how much you're letting your ears pop every day. Here's what I mean. How much are you zooming in on the activity at hand and how much are you zooming out to see it for what it really is? You need to zoom down to see how do I tactically do these seven things to make it come to life? But then how do I zoom out? The way I'm thinking about those seven things is it's serving me as I love my wife, as I'm a good father, as I'm in my community, as I'm creating new things. So, And then I can zoom back in. I think a lot of people that I meet are so zoomed in all the time, they don't give themselves daily mental permission to zoom out. So metacognition for me is zooming out and thinking about almost like seeing a little mini Billy you know, 30,000 feet down and saying, what is that guy thinking about when he does that? Just that activity. So is it thinking about
0: the thinking or is it thinking about how that big idea fits into the, the wholeness or the totality of your life?
1: It's a bit of both, but what's helped me most is literally thinking about my thinking and how, how am I mentally approaching this online course that I'm going to create for culture? Yeah, X, Y, Z. But then zooming out saying, when I'm, when I'm thinking about creating that, why do I always lean this way? Why do I get limited on pricing? Uh, why, do I, why do I do that? So it's, it's, it's thinking about my thought process that I'm creating. Typically, mm. it's when I'm creating a new revenue producing model.
0: Really interesting. I listened to a Tim Ferriss interview once with some billionaire from Brazil. I can't remember his name at all. Uh, it was a few years ago. And um, he runs multiple, he, has, he buys, and, uh, buys and sells companies. But when he goes in to turn companies around, every single procedure and every single department, he goes through and he asks the question, why? So they'll say, this is what we do. We do A, B, C, and D. And he says, Why? And then they answer him, and then he says, why? And mm-hmm. then they answer him, and then <laughs> he says, why? Yep. He does that five times in a row, and if at the end of the fifth time, he gets an answer that is congruent, consistent, makes perfect sense, then he keeps it. If he can't make it to the fifth time, he pulls the system out entirely because it's irrelevant. So, so I think good. that's sort of
1: sort of around what you're saying, Yeah. Yeah, he, he's much smarter than me. That's a, I'm gonna, actually going to use that from now on. That's really good. Because you know I have people that, that work with me at Elevate, and I see what we're doing. And I can even ask why once. But I know there's a deeper level of thinking as it ties, as you said, the bigger picture. But I love that idea of you, if you can get to the fifth why. And, and that's what I'm trying to accomplish is we've only got a limited number of time and days on the planet. Is the most effective thing, am I doing that well? Is there another way I should be thinking about it to get it done faster?
0: Yeah, you got to let the person know that you're asking this question. He's going to think that, you know, you're <laughs> schizophrenic. Yep. But once you do and, and you explain to them why you're asking why five times, Good. Um, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll get the idea. So I love that. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up with a speed round of questions. And the speed round of questions is basically first thing that comes to your mind. What would your
1: friends say is one of your superpowers? Ideas. I've got ideas for day. If you give me a, an inkling of something you're working on, I can give you 15 ways to make it happen.
0: What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? I'm afraid of failure. What's I don't, one
1: thing that? Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was getting deep on you for a second. Yeah, I'm. I'm afraid to fail. I and that motivates me. That's not a, a negative thing for me. Uh, I can hear Tony Robbins in the background <laughs> saying the many things that Tony says. But I'm afraid to not fulfill what. I was put on the earth to do. And I think I'm still in the process of figuring out what that is. I have an assignment
0: for you because I just listened to it. I want you to listen to Gary Vee today. The episode, the podcast episode is Weekly V 002. Nice. And he talks about why he's obsessed with failure to the point when he watches a game, a sports game, anybody other than the Jets, but when he watches a sports game, um, and he sees the team losing, he goes in for the losing team, but then when it flips, he goes, he goes for the other losing team. Yep. <laughs> so he just is always looking, he's obsessed with losing, and there's really something in that for
1: you. So yeah, I think you're going to dig that episode. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? People don't ask me about my strategy on business as much as I think they would, and I don't get asked much about how I think about raising my kids.
0: Mm, interesting
1: what is the one thing that you want to get better at i would like to get better at managing finances and knowing exactly where every dollar is spent where it goes that's down to facebook ads running traffic that's where my head is now is am i maximizing what i'm doing so i would say that's probably the top thing
0: yeah it's so important and it's so easy to ignore it yep what
1: book have you reread or re-listened to the most so there's one book I've read eight times. I have eight copies of it, and I've written, drawn in, underlined, circled, and it's Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Mm. It, it is the greatest business book of all time. I challenge any, anybody at any level of business to go and read it because it's so many pieces in each chapter. You can just take a chunk of it and use. So Good to Great is the biggest one for me.
0: What's one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but you're never going to do it? <laughs> I am a hoarder,
1: Rob. Like we Mm -hmm. we just emptied out a storage unit that we had that was just full of junk, and so I have every single picture and yearbook and jersey and jacket I've ever had for any sports team or any (laughs) anything involved with it. And I just don't need all of it, but I'm just for somehow it it brings me back to my childhood. So
0: Mm -hmm. that's probably it interesting that's where we differ I am the complete opposite I throw everything out my wife wants to kill me um, last uh, actually I have two more questions uh, if you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for nothing that uh, you speak about it could be on anything that you want anything that you have a passion for but not what you're known for what would it be
1: I would share the concept
0: of distance creates suspicion distance creates
1: suspicion okay I'll bite what is it? So I believe the further we are from people, the the punchline of it is is it's hard to hate somebody up close. Mm. I think that once we really get into somebody's world and we understand more about where they're at, there's a lot more understanding. This goes to politics, this goes to sports, this goes to everything. And so how can we, from a proximity standpoint, get closer to each other? I don't think anybody would ask me to ever speak about that, but that's something I'm really... I I try to do this on social media, like knowing the algorithm on Instagram, the only 7% of my audience is actually seeing when I'm posting. If I know that one of my friends doesn't like a photo, I don't let it affect me. You know, where probably three years ago I would have, wait, why'd you not not like my photo? Why'd you not, you know, why you not following along? Oh, I didn't even get it, you know, but that distance can create some, Oh, I wonder if type things.
0: Ah, I got it. That's really interesting. Okay. Last question. Mm -hmm. What one question do you want to ask me?
1: I really want to sit with you for a half day and ask you questions about how you're thinking about 2020 for your business and your future because you're kind of an anomaly to me. I would say I hate the phrase work-life balance. I don't like it. I think it's a myth. I think it's work-life rhythm and everything else. But how are you processing time with your... You have one child? I, well, I have two.
0: I have a 21-year-old and
1: I have a 5-year-old. Okay. so Believe it or not. I love it. So you're 21 and 5-year-old. How are you thinking about being the best dad you can be for them? And how does that connect to your business life?
0: Well, listen, you know, first of all, I agree with you. There is no work-life balance. The only reason why I use that term and I I didn't use it for years because I completely disagree with it, but it does get you into the conversation much quicker because people can people understand what you mean when yep. you say work-life balance. They're like, yeah, right, I work too much, I get it. But how do I think about it? I mean, the way I think about it is I plan exactly what I want my day to look like, my week to look like, my year to look like and I build everything around it. So for example, you know, I need or I want um a 2-hour morning ritual. So I block that out. I want a 2-hour gym ritual. So I block that out. I don't want to work on weekends. I block that out. I want 8 weeks a year off. That's done. I want to do a a month in Greece. I block that out. So I I literally look at the year in advance decide in advance what I want uh, the macro to look like the year and then the micro to look like the day. And then I just build the systems that I need to do uh, to create the income to be able to live that life that I want to live. Did that that answer the question? Yeah, it's great. I love it. Love it. Well, listen, man, this has been a super fast hour. Thank you so much for taking the time. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening?
1: Yeah. So listeners, here's what I would love from you is... If you'll give Rob a five-star on his podcast, it would mean everything. I have a podcast called Created for Experience if you guys ever want to stop by. But I know that it's tough for the actual interviewer uh, to ask and really mean that question. If, if Rob is adding value to you, just hit that five-star, leave a comment. It literally means everything. And if there's something you guys could do for me is go follow me on Instagram. That's where I'm spending most of my time. It's at Billy Bowie, B-I-L-O-Y-B-O-U-G-H-E-Y. And if you're interested in culture, or you say like, hey, I'd like to learn more about that, go pick up the book. It's on Amazon. Um, I have a ton of free stuff I'm giving away as well resources to help folks with their culture as well. So go check out Speaks.com. There's a lot of things on that. But um, but overall, I, any, anybody that listens to a podcast this long means you're interested in the uh, interview or not the interviewee. So uh, Rob, I'm super grateful that, that you would have me on this show. And I just know I cherish this time and I'm super grateful that you asked me on, man. Appreciate it. Thank you, Billy. All right, thanks for listening. If you
0: love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game